when I just was watching the trailer, I thought Robert Downey Jr. was like Jordan Peterson. <laughs> I did not recognize him. I'm like, who's this hag? Hello and, Hello welcome, and welcome to, to Cinephile New Wave. New Wave. Right, we tried. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I'm Nick, uh, and I am joined by Duran, Reese Bobo, Joe Corey, Tony Ferry, Rhett Hip, and Luisa Hernandez. Mm-hmm. All right, and we're we're here to talk about the double feature of the summer, Barbenheimer. Let's just get right into it, boys. Uh, what did what did we think of? Let's start with Oppenheimer. I thought it was great. It's very uh, good. Yeah, yeah I, I liked it. it. <laughs> I had two very distinct... I think I'm the only one here who's seen it twice, and I had two very distinct viewings, which I can talk about, but if we want to do like a more general thing right now, I can save that for later. Yeah, start with the distinct viewings. I'm curious. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I, th- I think I have to explain the f- like a little bit of context about each of them just so you get the full picture. Um, so I saw... It the first time opening weekend at a small historical theater in Denver. I just happened to be there for a wedding, and I was with my family. It was not an IMAX screen, and it was at like dead noon, middle of the day, pretty empty theater. And in that showing, I think that there a lot of the flaws of the film really stood out with me, especially concentrated, or at least what I saw to be flaws, um, especially concentrated in the beginning of the film. Um, I think I actually took a bathroom break and texted the chat like i thought the movie sucked uh at the first half um which is a crime against cinema and uh and i think that really prevented me from like kind of engaging with some of the important emotional threads with oppenheimer and it kept me in this like much more critical like state so i i was pretty critical of of oppenheimer coming out of that viewing but then i rewatched it last night so i could give it a fair shake for the podcast and um i i saw it like late at night the only seat available was like row b middle um well i mean best seat available was that so i i got the i got the shotgun to the face viewing of of oppenheimer and going in knowing what the flaws i thought were and like how they were present rather than kind of being surprised or frustrated by them just kind of accepting that they were there i was able to engage i think more with the movie on its level and appreciate it for what other people were appreciating it for so my opinion softened uh, but i think that both viewings for me felt very valid um and like yeah it has flaws but also it can be a good movie if you're willing to look past those flaws yeah i was i was very kind of hit or miss on both the the pacing and the editing the first the first kind of act feels like a trailer for a movie that's going to happen rather than a movie that's actually happening well it's because there's this obsession in this film with just like with the quickest cuts you've ever seen every shot length is like you know five seconds in the especially in the beginning and i mean while it is a slower movie it has compared to other nolan films it's actually not slow at all but while the content of it is slower than like a fucking inception or a dark night we still have extreme action movie editing just like with people talking with a guy walking around his you know his his classroom it's just boom 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 i wanted to hang on these moments more i wanted to sit with the feeling more so that's my beef with the editing it didn't wasn't a huge factor to me but i just wanted to sit with the feeling longer 
you know? Uh, not a yeah, lot of I actually really like that. When, when watching it, I was kind of thinking, okay, so this is what happens when you need to make a long biopic for the TikTok generation. You have to edit it in such a way that every single scene is a digestible bit that gives you just enough information to be propelled forward further and further and further. I've, I could have watched it for an hour longer. I really wanted it to be a longer film. Even though it was three hours, it felt like it went really fast. I think that it has something to do with uh, the culture of moviegoers now. I agree that like sure. the film felt like uh, it was really fast-paced. I actually really liked it because of that. It really kept me engaged the whole time. Like, I, It really didn't feel like three hours at all. I really enjoyed it for that. I really, I really liked the editing. Yeah. And it, it kept me engaged, like far longer than i thought it would especially with like a lot of like the science stuff which i'm not super into like personally but it made it interesting to me yeah i kind of think that this is definitely an extension of nolan's craft so part of this comes with what you think about his previous movies and personally i didn't see the vision coming into this movie of a movie that has so much dialogue especially coming from tenet where it didn't matter but I think Nolan really understands how much he can get away with just his craft. Like, Tenet is just craft. And so I was like, oh, no, he's going to try craft and story. Like, I was ready for it to be bad. And especially at the beginning, the dialogue wasn't sticking for me. But I think he realizes how much he can convey with so little. Like, he doesn't need the shots to be longer. Like, you want them to be longer, but, like... Today's landscape, yeah, people are used to TikTok and stuff, and they can consume information so much quicker that he realizes that, like, with his quick editing, he can just cover so much ground. So I kind of think it makes sense for his style to try to tell, like, these grand historical stories and, like, you know, have the nuke go off halfway through the movie and still have, like, so much story left. Yeah, I was kind of expecting it to end kind of, like, after the nuke went off. So I was... I I had a little problem with like the pacing towards towards the back end. Like I felt like it was dragging a little bit, even though like the editing was still fast. Like it still felt like it was like kind of dripping information. Well, one of my problems with it was the ending was so. When I say ending, I mean the last hour, really the post post the bombs being dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, the film was so much more interested in the sort of drab courtroom drama than the dealing with the psychological torture of the man who has to deal with it and there was some of that i you know and i thought the scene of him giving the speech while he's like mentally tortured thinking about the victims of the bomb and steps into a charred corpse that stuff was great the stuff with him like sitting in a in a little room with a projection of how the nuke affected people's bodies and having to sit with that for a moment was Mm. great but the my problem with the back half of the film is it's like 20% that and 80% like, uh, you know, sort of like governmental power plays, which is still interesting and important. And, you know, it has a point to make about like, you know, professionals and being destroyed for these political bullshit money power reasons for standing up for, you know, against weapons and all that. But I just wanted to I wanted Nolan to get personal for once. I wanted Nolan to make a movie about a individual for once and get real deep and human and we got some of that and what we got was so good. I just wanted more of that personal level stuff with Jay Robert. 
Yeah. I think that I did see more of that on my on my second viewing. I or I was able to engage with the personal stuff more. Like I it, I felt so wrapped especially with how large the cast is and how how much it's kind of like look at this new A or high B list actor who's playing this small role. Are they going to be important? I don't know, but um when I was able to kind of just focus on Oppenheimer as the through line of the movie, Oppenheimer and I, I think it benefits also from some clarity that like RDJ is like the antagonist of the movie. So going back, like having a more clear picture of what uh, RDJ and his role is in the film, you're able to kind of follow the back and forth between those two a little bit better. And I, I see how like the, there's a line early on about, you know math and music and it's like you got to be able to hear the music and i think this time like i heard the music of the film more i saw like kind of how he's like pacing the dramaturgical you know relay of information but i i do think he kind of needlessly obfuscated exactly what role like i don't see why he needed to make it a like a kind of twist that rdj was like the antagonist of the movie i mean nolan just couldn't help himself he had to this this story would have been in my opinion better served told in a linear fashion, but he needed to make it non-linear because he's Christopher Nolan, you know? He needed yeah, to... Yeah, like, he... I, <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but there was a Reddit post about this, how he, like, needs to let Memento go. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just think, like, part of this is the interesting part of his craft. Um, you know, like, Dunkirk is completely non-linear just because it's paced emotionally, not linearly. Um, and I think some of the interesting stuff is how this movie builds into becoming nonlinear. Um, and, you know, I agree, Joe, that like there's there's more room for expl exploration of Oppenheimer. But I kind of was surprised with the character study that it became because um, I was mm -hmm. thinking it would just kind of be more historical. But there's so many scenes especially in quick succession where he does one thing or says one thing and then his actions contradict it that in the second half, I was really like staring at his face thinking like, who is this guy? Like, what is he thinking? Um, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that like what I really, really liked about this film was how ambiguous the character of Oppenheimer remained throughout. Like there's definitely parts where you, we dive into his psychology. Like um, as Joe said, when he's like giving the speech in front of all those cheering people and seeing like the victims um, in front of him. But also like we never really fully dive into his psychology. And like there's parts in the movie where his like opinions are like being questioned. He's like being like pushed to like give um, an answer on things. He can never really give like straight answers about like what his opinions are, which yeah. I found to be really interesting as like, you would think that the guy who's known as like the father of the atom bomb would have certain strong opinions. Like you would think yeah. that, there would be more delving into his psychology, but I liked how it remained ambiguous and like how he was portrayed as this person that like no one can really know fully. I actually watching it the second time around, I felt like there was more of a clearer through line as to who he was and what he thought and that you can see more clearly, which again is why I think I appreciated the, what Reese was saying about, I think I saw the emotional structure of it and how it was structured to kind of be this battle between RDJ and Oppenheimer or RDJ's character's name is Strauss. I should just be calling him Strauss, but Strauss and Oppenheimer. Um, but yeah, I think just the unnecessary nonlinearity of it while serving the emotional like pacing of it, I think 
makes it a little bit less clear what Nolan kind of wants you to think of Oppenheimer as like this person. Cause there's a scene. Well, I think that's the point. Like, I don't think he wants you to think of Oppenheimer in one single way. I think like that's the whole point of the movie. I didn't, I didn't get that from my second viewing. I think like very, it becomes very clear that by the time as he's getting closer to the bomb being dropped, he's both being told and he realizes more the role he's going to have to play as like a politician handling the new atomic world. Uh, it's when Niels Bohr says it to him uh, at one point, And I think Einstein at some point kind of reiterates that as well. And I think once you kind of have the full picture after seeing it one time, you see it and you're like, Oh wait, no, he realizes what's going to happen. And there's this one scene where he's kind of like, I can't remember who says it, but someone's like, he realized that wringing his hands and being playing the victim and being like, I'm so sad that the bomb was dropped is only going to get him so far that he needed to be the one who took action and started taking those steps to prevent the world from further nuclearizing. So I think it actually seems like he has a clearer opinion or goal or objective throughout the film once you have that clearer picture. Well, that's separate from like who he is as a person though. And like, there's a lot that can kind of, contradict that aspect of him and like i think even like even like when strauss is like pissed off that he's like not going to make the vote he like voiced some opinions about Oppenheimer that like sure are in like um like while he's angry and kind of like throwing shit around but are, are kind of true like he is like also on, on like the one hand he's trying to cool down the cold war in some ways but um on the other side like he is this kind of like huge narcissist who like revels in like the fame and like really like plays into his character as the father of the song i think he used that purely for political reasons i think i think i don't know that was my interpretation of the character well i think what's interesting about this movie and why i ultimately like that it turns into this courtroom drama is i think it ultimately becomes a bigger story than Oppenheimer. And the interesting question is just like, would this history have happened the same without him? Like, would someone else have created the bombs and we would have been within the same state? Um, and the movie does a big thing of like, the world has been changed after the bomb has been created. But what I like courtroom section in the second half is you get the feeling that this is how things always were. And I don't know, my biggest takeaway of the, of the movie, of what I felt the movie communicated most effectively was that America didn't lose or squander its uh, moral superiority after World War II, that it never had it. Just kind of this feeling that um, like these tools were always going to be used for wrong. Like these are weapons that they're making. They were always making weapons. Like these weren't, tools like these weren't scientific experiments like these were weapons um mm -hmm. so i think like that was the most interesting stuff that i'm still thinking about not and just like oppenheimer's role in it is just like how complicit is he in the system is the interesting part yeah well i mean that was one of my favorite things was his kind of internal back and forth of like if if i don't do this then like germany or someone else will and like and it, I don't know, it was it was conveyed a little like plainly, but like it, it worked. Yeah, that's like an interesting question. I think it does struggle with I I think the thing it is more the film is more uncertain of what it wants to do is like like communal versus individual responsibility because there's a lot of 
you know, talking in the, in the movie about communism and kind of at the end of the day when it comes to, like, denying Strauss and, like, reaffirming Oppenheimer's importance, it shows that, like, it, a, a big, like, line slash theme of the movie is, like, being able to see the big picture and kind of the fundamental, like, difference between Oppenheimer and Strauss, Strauss being kind of the stand-in for the U.S. government in general, is that, like, he's very short-sighted, very, you know, focused on personal political stuff, while the scientific community can see the bigger picture of the atomic world. But there's also a lot of, like, well, but Oppenheimer is still the main character. He's still kind of the one that, you know, so I... I, I enjoyed that dynamic, but I think it could have been, you know, maybe more thoroughly fleshed out, I guess, which is part of the pacing issues. Yeah. Louisa, <laughs> you look like you've had something to say, so. I do. I mean, I'm just, like, hearing you guys, and it's, like, all very interesting. I do have mixed opinions on that, like, second half. I did like that, but I, I did expect more of that. Like, that after for him, I did want to see more of the psychology of the movie, more emotional, like, input. And I do think it was important, like, the courtroom, all of that, because we don't... I mean, we, we see Oppenheimer's perspective for the majority of the of the movie, and it is important to see, like, okay, this is how things actually happen, and, and this is the outside world, and how uh, everyone and everything reacted after the bomb. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, he conveyed all of that, like, very well. But, yeah, there is that feeling, like, you want to linger on some of this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, that that scene, um, well, there were a couple of scenes, but the two that, like, really made me see, like, wow, this guy is a genius. Sitting through the crowd of people and how bombs were dropped in. But, yeah, like, I, I just wanted to see more of that, more of his experience. Uh, and then also when, like, we would see, I talked to you about that, but... Oh, like how it's edited, so that it's, like, when yeah. they, like, mention a person and they, like, kind of have a flash of that person. Yes, I love editing. the editing of that. Just, like, seeing his perspective and how his brain worked and what was happening at the moment in his head. I yeah. love that. Yeah, I liked the different cuts to explosions or different ways in which Oppenheimer was like visualizing how the bomb would interact with things like around him or him looking at raindrops. I just thought that was really good at being subjective or like putting in his subjective perspective. And also a good way of explaining just how the imagination of a theoretical physicist is, of how they really are thinking of playing with the world around them and how that's like a cool creativity, but how that literally translates to their actions like they're playing with the world around them like there was a chance that they were going to ignite the atmosphere stuff like that yeah and like i really liked how the editing also foreshadowed certain scenes later in the movie um it kind of like gave me the sense that the film is kind of like a closed loop um that like everything in the film and in history was kind of like faded to be that way I I wasn't a huge fan of the dialogue overall, but on second viewing, there were some lines where I'm like, these do set up, like, kind of through lines that I think are interesting to analyze through the movie. Like, there was one line that was like, uh, oh yeah, he was talking about, like, will the government listen to Strauss or him? And uh, his friend was like, when they hear you, they hear a prophet. When they hear Strauss, they hear themselves. And Oppenheimer was like, they'll listen to a prophet. And his friend was like, a prophet can never be wrong. 
and I was like, okay, is is there a moment where Oppenheimer was wrong, or was you know, is did you know did he play the game as best he could, you know that kind of that kind of stuff. I think there are interesting ways to pick at it. I kind of want to talk about the dialogue too because the dialogue is easily could be the weakest element. You know, there's moments in it that there's laughable lines. Like even at the end, there's some kind of like just corny stuff that's said. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, I wasn't into the movie at all because I'm like, okay, it's editing so quick. Like I just saw all the shortcomings. Like this dialogue is bad. Like I didn't like the performances and the movie just built for me. But as it built, it became, the dialogue became more poetic and uh, it's hard to even say like if the dialogue's wrong because it's like aren't these real quotes taken from a book and so it's kind of like the stylizing makes it all more poetic and it's like we're not necessarily supposed to see these realist performances and maybe that's what he was going for but it's kind of like these are the best quotes taken from history put into a book and then the best quotes of a book taken out and then we just see those snippets of history like all strung together to convey one story um i don't know what were other people's thoughts on the dialogue because I'm, I'm definitely mixed about it at times i thought it worked for me i especially loved the ending the like the last exchange between him and um albert einstein mm -hmm. i thought that was great like with how einstein said that the real challenge is going to come after the bomb is dropped and like uh like how the aftermath will haunt him and the way that like history will look at him. I thought that was really great. I agree. I really like that. Yeah. I think that was part of like, once I was like vibing with the film and I was like emotionally connecting with the characters. It, like the first time I heard that I was like, Oh, this is a very kind of logistical perfunctory thing. But then when I'm like watching it the second time, I'm like, wait a minute, this is Albert fucking Einstein saying this. Like that <laughs> is kind of harrowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Talk for sure. The speed made it so that the characterization was very hard. So the amount of characters that were in the film made it almost impossible to give them like three-dimensional characters. And so not only was a lot of the dialogue three-dimensional, but the characters were almost cartoonish. But with the surrounding tone and the way that it was shot, it didn't seem cheesy. But I see how uh, what Reese is saying about it being kind of like cringy or almost comical is, is kind of true. I think fundamentally, like, what you kind of have to accept of it is, like, it is, like, that it is kind of, it's, it's weirdly, like, a blockbuster wearing the skin of, like, a scientific biopic or something like that. Yeah. Which I think is what everyone should have expected going in, but it's still, like, weird confronting that in reality. Because, like, like, there was a scene uh, where he met his friend on the train for the first time, and the friend, like, one of the, he has a line where he's like, you have to go meet this physicist in, in uh, this place. And it's he sounded like an NPC giving him a quest. <laughs> and then I don't think, I, I don't really remember, I think it, that was, um, it wasn't Niels Bohr, it was someone else. But yeah, it was an, a lot of characters are like appear and are mentioned like really quickly and then like never appear again. And sometimes they're they're like teased out as like this big actor. Like they made a big deal of like when Casey Affleck appeared, there were like a lot of shots of him from like behind his head. Like, oh, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And then like he never appears again in the movie. Yeah, I, I kind of want to talk about the casting of this movie because like the, the cast of this is like 
the whitest dude core cast of characters <laughs> I've ever seen in my entire life. Like we got we, also, we got we Roderick, we got Clark. Josh Peck, we got yeah. Casey Affleck, we got Jason Clark. Of course Jason Clark is in this movie because why wouldn't Jason Clark be in this stupid fucking movie? No, I, I like it though. But Alden, uh, and Reach or Oh my god, is... yeah, Han Solo. Han Solo. Oh my god. Benny yeah. Safty. Benny, Benny Safty. fucking no, yeah. Benny fucking Safty. Uh, I did find the line ha- laughable when he's like, "This is the most important thing to ever happen." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love that game in this movie. I I did re- I did really on second viewing really like the scene where he and Oppenheimer met for the first time. I uh, I, I thought that was a well done scene. Other than yeah. I guess Murphy, uh, I think Matt Damon gives the best performance in the film. He's fucking Same. great. I mean, he's magnetic. Mm-hmm. I'm holding on to every word. He's this like compelling like sort of wolf in sheep's clothing guy to Oppenheimer, you know, like pretending to be this humble soldier, but he's also like MIT trained and, mm-hmm. you know, is trying to use uh, Oppenheimer as like this instrument for the U.S. government. It's very, very compelling character. Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> thinking about the through line of like the, you know, the, the prophet and like, you know, where did he mess up? I actually kind of found the moment where he was like, wait a minute, there's a chance that we might end the world doing this, like, that might have been the the failure if, like, the prophet was ever wrong, because all the scientists, like, just kind of took it for granted that, like, people understood that this was a given, that they might end the world, and that, yeah, it was, but, like, if they had maybe explained that better to the, you know, the military people, that this might be a world-ending device, um, then maybe, maybe this could have been avoided. So, I don't know, I feel like the elephant in the room at this point is the big fucking set piece, which I thought was fucking phenomenal. Like, for all the problems yeah. I have with this movie, I, I ultimately still think it's a good to great movie, uh, largely because it's that's it's haunting, it's harrowing, it's pure cinema, the sound, the, you know, and that, and that scene when the when the nuke drops, it's it's truly terrifying and chilling, and my, my heart was beating out of my chest, and I, I knew have- it was a I knew I no have, one was gonna die. You know, it was just exhilarating. I have never yeah, understood the, the phrase yeah. "the silence is deafening" more than in that scene. I think. Yeah. 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 I was in a theater with three hundred people, and it was dead quiet. Like I did not. No one was breathing. Like everyone was holding their breath. Yeah. Yeah. Same. That was definitely the other thing. A... Like I was so underwhelmed by the bomb in in my first viewing, and then on the second viewing, I was like, okay, now I see what they were doing here. Yeah, I saw okay, yeah. Uh, as recommended on the on the biggest screen possible in IMAX seventy millimeter, and my god, that was incredible. Yeah, yeah. And I, on the second viewing too, I I liked how like both thematically that kind of works too, and, and visually they kind of reference that at some points where it's like you can see the light, but then you don't really hear the the aftershock until later, and I I think that is something part of what makes the i the third act was definitely my favorite act even in the first viewing because it's like you can see a lot of the the themes of the movie come to fruition you know i will say this is a shortcoming of christopher nolan or a trade-off with him doing everything practically is you know the fireball looked really cool there's all these amazing practical close-ups and this and that but it didn't look like a nuke like Mm -hmm. we've all seen footage of nuclear test explosions and it just wasn't the same scale of a mushroom cloud because they're doing a practical explosion 
And it's just one moment in the movie where the entire set piece is like, it doesn't hurt the, the effect that's communicated. But like when I'm looking at the fireball, that's the only distracting thing where I'm like a CGI nuke here would have helped the movie. You should, you should watch. I agree with you, Reese. I actually thought that, uh, yeah, I was gonna say, I thought the Twin Peaks return nuke scene was better than that. It made me think of that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't, you can't compare David Lynch to to Christopher Nolan. (laughs) But it does make me want to see that scene on an IMAX screen. So (laughs) if anyone's down to pull some money and rent out an IMAX theater to watch the return, I would be down. (laughs) I mean, even as a Lynch fan, I, I thought this was, this was better than Lynch's nuke. Like, Come on, this was this was, and I I wasn't thinking about like the re- I don't care anything about historical realism with the tiny details of like a mushroom cloud. I would have taken how fucking visceral and fiery and hellish this looked over any yes. scene. Yes, yeah. Like, whoa, the the shape of the the explosions more realistic. Who gives a shit? In my it's opinion, no, I agree. Uh, it I didn't agree. feel it didn't I, feel I transcendental the... to me. I don't know. It didn't hit. I love. It. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to like oh, make you. It's supposed to make you fucking scared. It's no, it wasn't. It was not harrowing. I I didn't I didn't no, feel I anything really from it. I disagree. The the color was like the the bright orange. Yeah. Um, which is man, that was so sick. Uh, build up was... of of pressing the button like. Yeah, everyone was so ready for it. Yeah. And um, <laughs> when that when that shockwave finally came, it <laughs> jumped me out of my seat. Yeah. Yeah, I jumped from that. That yeah. was cool. I think that like everyone in the theater like jumps during that that part. To change the subject a little bit more to but like still talking about technical aspects, I thought this film had the best lighting like in recent memory in a movie. Like every shot is lit so well um and also doing incredible thematic things like there's multiple moments where people's face is lit broad from one side and i was thinking like why are they Mm -hmm. doing that but then later when the nuke goes off it mirrors how they're lit when the nuke goes off and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and like people's face turning into shadow when they start to lie it's just like it and it melds so perfectly with his subjective point of view or like i don't even know i'm like is the lighting like is he imagining the lighting it, it was just really good lighting. Oh, i love that too i remember that specifically when he was going into the uh waiting to get called into the oval office and he's got like you know the sort of like nuclear impending explosion like bright white light on the side of his face and i just kept thinking about like mm-hmm. nuke lighting you know and also the president scene i thought was fucking great I, the, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, Gary Oldman just playing like a a dastardly Harry S. Truman who's like basically calls him a pussy and tells him to fuck off once he shows <laughs> any bit of force. That's probably like the most really like, inaccurate Truman ever. Yeah, yeah, he really called him a crybaby, or like he's he said to, <laughs> to one of his staffers, like never Get let that crybaby cry out of my office, office. It's crazy. like in my office again. You didn't drop, you didn't drop the bomb on those people. I did, okay. <laughs> and I have no scruples about it, so you shouldn't either. Yeah, just great scene, like in terms of like how we're talking about like culpability and who's responsible because that in that scene is probably when he felt most responsible is when someone else took took it from him. Mm-hmm. That that mm-hmm. was also kind of like a like a little bit of a step back thing, and it's like 
the the scene where they were talking about like where to drop the 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 bomb on Japan and it's like why are we even talking about dropping bombs on high civilian density places like the like the grossness of like oh yeah we're not going to drop it on Ky like that Kyoto was even on the table but that it went off the table because well, he said because of the cultural importance, but also like my wife and I honeymoon. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. shit was so that funny. shit was diabolical. That yeah, was so it was like, up. what incredible piece of like culture can we fucking destroy? Like it was that part was I thought really well done. Just how callous and unfeeling that the <laughs> it was. Made me think of something kind of interesting, which is that I don't think that the bomb would have been. Uh, as effective if it, had, if it had been dropped on Germany as if it had on Japan, because I think that a, another cycle would have repeated where uh, Germany felt no no guilt after um, after the war. So you know, in World War One, after the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was uh, distraught and they felt as if they'd been wronged, and so they were able to um, justify doing a lot of terrible things because there was no like. They're like, well, you did this bad thing to me, so we're going to do this bad thing. And so after the war, you know, there, the West was basically like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you did the Holocaust. And Germany felt uh, immense guilt. And so they changed yeah. their actions. And so the West has this guilt feeling, whereas uh, the East has a, a shame feeling. Right? And so basically Japan was almost ashamed, embarrassed by the atomic bomb. And uh, there's no there's no cycle that would be perpetuating. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I think so. Yes. Yeah, I also, you know, when he when they talked about not bombing the city because of honeymoon, my entire theater laughed, but like I scoffed. It's just like a weird moment of, you know, my my audience was very respectful and laughing at uh, the couple, couple appropriate Matt Damon lines. Um, but then the only other time that they laughed were uh, when they mentioned um, John F. Kennedy. Um, but that also was just kind of like a weird dramatic irony moment for me. And I also think really ties together the theme of like American superiority, um, you know, and it's a little on the nose with the line of like, oh, do, does it, do we need a, a reason to do something good? But also it's kind of like the downfall of John F. Kennedy, like starts all the way back with like the history of Oppenheimer. And you can imagine it goes from, before Oppenheimer. Yeah. Um, because the the whole the whole theme is that the US government has a deep memory. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I wanted to Can touch we... on one last thing it, before we should probably move on. Um it might be. Um No, I just wanted to go back to um we were talking about the speech before where he's like, "Ah, it should have been Germany." I love how that's edited to be like you're not sure if that's, like, really what's happening or not. Like, you're not really sure if he's, like, really saying these things to this group of people. But, um, turns out he was. That was that was a real thing that he said to uh, a crowd of people after he had finished mm -hmm. building the bomb. I, I do think that, um, we, we should address the, the female characters of the movie. Yeah. Pretty, pretty... Not not uh not like reprehensible, but yeah, pretty like tacked on. I thought it was pretty pretty abysmal, I, I think. I thought it was very tacked on. I I mean uh his wife's basically just like an alcoholic who 
throws shit at the wall and yells occasionally. Mm-hmm. I thought I thought it was very overdone. Now Emily Blunt is has a bottle in her hand every fucking yeah. Scene. If you know alcoholics, yeah. they're they're never that brazen. Like she's just so brazen. She's like I think she's like messing around with like a bottle in her purse when she's in like the you know the government office getting mm-hmm. questioned. Like it was it was kind of silly. And then yeah. Florence, Florence, Florence Pugh. I mean, you're gonna run into the issue of anytime you're making a film about one person, like fully centering on one person, you're gonna run into the issue of other characters are just there to build their story. When you get it with like a man like this, it can it can have some undertones that are a little bit like, oh, well, he needs to have a, a you know, a smoking hot babe to help him because it's a biopic, and what would it be without an obligatory sex scene and you know, she asks him to read the Bhagavad Gita in the middle of sex. Like, a lot of that just felt there to sort of, like, aggrandize his story. And, yeah, it was a little silly. Yeah, but also how they, like, I, she just wasn't written well. And that's part of the, like, I think I could have done with this also. It's weird, because I do respect and appreciate the focus it does have as a film. But I'm also, like, this this could have been, like, a, a series or something like that. Because, like, I feel like if you could have let that character breathe... And like explored a little bit more of like, like let her feel like a more fully realized character that it could feel more earned. But because it just felt like a very kind of almost cartoonishly like mentally ill woman, like or Nolan's idea of a mentally ill woman. Um, yeah, it was it was kind of messed up that like the movie basically said that she committed suicide because of Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Was there like any like evidence for that to be the case? Well, but they they also said that like she might have been assassinated by the government. Um, huh? Yeah, they they um, in in the scene where you you kind of see part of her like drowning, um, there's like a black gloved hand on the back of her head at one point, and they said that she took barbiturates, but that there were uh, traces of other poisons in her blood. Oh, I didn't catch that. Died from drowning. Mm, didn't catch that either. Hmm. That's uh, that's a, something I'll have to look for in the rewatch. I know my friend was telling me all this history of like suspicious stuff that made it not look like a suicide or something. That'd be the first time the US government has ever killed somebody. And yeah, you know, I don't want to let Nolan off the hook because he's never written women well ever. <laughs> but it is like in some ways playing to his strengths to write a subjective film in the perspective of a sexist because it's like how little screen time is given to the women is how little attention Oppenheimer gave yeah. them. Um so like in some regards it makes sense for not focusing the story around it but still even in the small time that they had like i agree with joe like it's like she has a baby in one hand and a bottle in another hand it's like okay (laughs) she was more than that like yeah well like also there were the like there are plenty of female scientists and mathematicians who were involved in the um the manhattan project and like the ones they had were just it felt like they were checking a box because they had one woman who showed up and was like, oh, they asked me if I could be a typewriter, but I they didn't teach me how to type at my Ph.D. program. And then the other scene where it was like guys being sec- like a very like two second scene of guys being like, oh, but the radiation might affect your female reproductive system. And the woman was like, oh, but your guy's reproductive system is more exposed than my like it's I don't know. It felt like if you're if you were playing to your strengths and you wanted to like just kind of make a movie about a man just like make a movie about a man and don't try to do the like lip surface to like representing women in the film but i don't know it's okay to like not center them because it's not about them it's about oppenheimer but like 
they did feel a little caricature you know a little mm-hmm. and it's and it's and it's okay yeah it's okay to see them just sort of in his orbit because he is the center of the film but when you're just like a cartoonish drunk it can be a little like reductive feeling i i don't know how to feel because i i do feel like of course this is oppenheimer's perspective and everything and i just like appreciated how you someone said <laughs> um that it was supposed to be like that it was the the little attention he paid to both of those women but i do i did i don't know i felt like emily blunt's character like i she had more to say than she was allowed to sometimes or like she was never heard in so many ways to try to help uh oppenheimer and she was just like dismissed and i also feel like that was part of the i don't know intentional it, it was intentional and I, I i don't know if i like truly appreciated that mm. i i think part of it is also i think nolan uh you know is very aligned with with oppenheimer from like a creative perspective and part of it the theme of him like seeing the bigger picture i don't think he like he lets he lets emily blunt have that one scene where she like puts um uh jason clark in his place um but like when she's like yelling at oppenheimer for not fighting strauss or whatever i especially on second watching i feel like it's kind of being like oh well she doesn't and also with some of the stuff with uh i think there's a dynamic that kind of runs through the film about oppenheimer's relationship with both of them um and how that like that i think it implies uh Florence Pugh's character kind of sees the bigger Jean. picture more and uh her name's Jean. Jean, how Jean and how she sees, you know, the the more intellectual side of Oppenheimer and that it seems like Emily Blunt doesn't see that, she more just sees him as a as a person, but so in those moments of like it feels like it's kind of treating Emily Blunt I, I don't know. It's, it's it's not really giving her an equal place to stand with Oppenheimer, which well, is I guess maybe intentional, but one of the weird things is she's also like a physicist. And mm-hmm. and she, that was just like not remarked on at all. Uh, well, after the, after their initial meeting, which I just I thought it was weird. Like the the film was caught between uh, trying deciding whether or not it wanted them to be people or not, like fully fleshed out characters. So I feel like it, you know it kind of tried to have it both ways, and it just kind of wasn't fully rocking it. Yeah. You know. Also, you have to remember that like. All of Christopher Nolan's stories are about great men at the helm of collaborative efforts, which is the role of a director, you know, like Inception and Tenet, and I can go on. But so you have to wonder, is he relating to Oppenheimer because he thinks he's like a good director? I mean, he was the director of the Manhattan Project. Right. So it's just like, is, you know, um, part of the reason I'd really like this movie is I I thought it it provided a lot of nuance um, and it didn't just glorify him, but you know, to Joe's point, like, is he just trying to have it a little bit both ways and trying to glorify him of being like, well, he was a good collaborator or like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's like, it's like morally gray, you know, I think it's yeah. the, the film that does, doesn't ever give us like the easiest, like Oppenheimer, good Oppenheimer, bad moments. I think a lot of it is like, yeah. You know, we see a guy who's sort of well intentioned, but sort of just really sciency, and his 
his what he believes believes don't always equal what he says and what he does. So I think it has a good amount of moral grayness to it. And I, I, I never really got that into the whole like director making a blockbuster. He like sees the character as literally him. Like there are some <laughs> there are some lines you can draw, but I don't think Nolan was like making a film about himself. I, don't I think he was just rightly fascinated by this really interesting character from history. Yeah. All right, boys, we've spent almost an hour here. So I think it's time to move on to Barbie. Wait, there's another movie? Yeah, <laughs> yes, there it's is. Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer, baby. Know, there was a third that was made. <laughs> <laughs> there was a third, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Barbie, what, uh, what did you guys think? I thought it was a very fun, funny little romp. I think as Ken's, we should let Barbie say what she thought of Barbie movie. I I thought it was everything. I I sat down with no expectations. I love Greta's work. It's just um, I thought it was funny. I thought it was well. First of all, it it was emotionally wrecking. I cried basically the entire movie. It was just touching so many elements of womanhood and the real life that it's like this is so true this is some these are some things that no one talks about and and it's how women feel about their bodies and their places and the roles they play in the world and I thought that was just so interesting and so well put into the movie I absolutely loved the monologue uh, glorious monologue and it's like it's also true and and it it also brings out so many other things to the surface that I wasn't expecting like even I don't know like the mother-daughter relationship that really touched me in a personal way but I also thought it was genius to put that in the movie like this is this is not a kids movie this is like yeah, well, it's it's interesting because that adds, like, a generational element to it where it's like, you know, this is how your mother sees Barbie and this is how the kind of newer generation yeah. sees Barbie and it's not the same. Exactly. So I, I think that was so good to be a, I don't know, such a big element of the movie. Yeah, the gender dynamics in general were very interesting how, like, Ken in Barbie land was the female perspective and Barbie was the male perspective and then flipping that in the real world. It didn't happen. Yeah. It it, it truly didn't happen. Um, it was so interesting because I've, I've heard so many things on like, well, this is basically like reverse gender roles. And I'm like, yeah, but even on in, in Barbie land, the kids were just ignored or dismissed or overlooked, but they were never treated like how Barbie was treated as soon as she got to the real world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They're, they they're... All, they got it all figured out in Century City. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I... I, I think that's kind of part of it is I think that that brings like the 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 violence of the real world you know the, not not the like literal physical violence but you know the like emotional violence of the real world that doesn't exist in Barbie Land like yeah I didn't really I and I think that's why I didn't really see Ken as like the oh it's a male being put in the the female's perspective because it, Barbie Land doesn't have that kind of political violence that the real world does 
Sure, but I mean, it's also the Barbie movie, so like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can only get so deep with that. Mm-hmm. I just thought the whole movie was so clever. Like, everything was smart and funny. And it just kind of surpassed my expectations of what, like, a commercialized blockbuster could be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, before we were talking about, like, Greta Gerwig had a quote of, like, I want to be a studio director. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she's shilling out. Like, why would she ever want to do that? But then after seeing this, I'm like, oh, my gosh, Greta Gerwig should be a studio director. Like... Because she, she wants to make blockbusters good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just thought it was a really good vision. And like, you know, you you see this story and you almost think like, oh, we've heard this all before. But it's like, actually, no, there aren't really movies that just tackle this in such like a head on and entertaining way. Um, yeah. And I, I've gone I've gone tired of movies that are like maximalist and self-referential. Um but this felt so fresh just in terms of the execution was great. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I agree. It was very refreshing. Like, yeah, refreshing. Uh, I thought the movie worked best when it was, uh, for me, than when it was like a comedy. I thought Ryan Gosling was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, I th- but but the, com- the comedy still had depth to it. Uh, mm-hmm. like it's not like oh I didn't like when it got political no that was that was that was good mm-hmm. when it was I felt when it was done through comedy it had this like very funny satirical aspect to it like when Gosling goes into the real world and and he's just like this patriarchy shit fucking rocks and he and he like <laughs> patriarchy is not about horses yeah he equates it with horses that shit killed me like. And so then he goes back to Barbie land and has like a horse Mount Rushmore because he saw some horse <laughs> yeah. pop. Uh, yeah, the, the mojo like dojo. Yeah, the mojo dojo yeah. house. Oh. Yeah. Fucking love and the, that. What else made something else? Oh my God. When when he when he's singing the Matchbox 20 song, I want to push you where. And then they're all singing. <laughs> that was super funny. Uh, and yeah, sure. you know, people, people always talk to me. Well, a few people have been like, oh, my God, Ryan Gosling can be so fucking funny in Barbie. And I was like, really? Like, what's he funny in? You know, I, I mean, there's a few things, but I don't I know him more from like Drive and, you know, uh, Blade Runner. Yeah, he's so funny in Drive. But, but Blade Runner's hilarious. It's he's funny as fuck. Nice he is. Guys. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've been loving all the the interviews with him and how he's been talking about like you know his Disney roots and how he's been channeling Ken and all that stuff. I think it's been a, a fascinating process seeing him, and I, I just as well with Margot Robbie, like the fact that yeah. she is just completely like it. It never feels like she sees herself as above this role. She gives her all, and like sure, it's not her most complex or dynamic role. And I don't think it's her like most complicated role or anything like that. But still, the fact that she could do the Barbie movie and just give her all to that is still just very impressive. I don't completely agree with that. Of course, it's not like a very complex film, but it kind of is. I don't know. I've just heard a little of my, my male friends saying like, oh, yeah, it was funny. And I'm like, okay, but like, I hear all of my female friends and we all agree on how this is such a an impactful movie and it is a complex character and it's a complex plot and it touches so many things for us that you might not see that that's how i think that this is a complex role like it was it was being barbie but it was not only being that it was 
being serious enough to be Barbie at its fullest and mm -hmm. fully embrace womanhood on this other side once she realizes what's happening in the real world. Yeah, no, I certainly don't want to mischaracterize uh, that as I think the, the movie is simple. I, I think it's more just like of her roles, like comparing it to say um, her, you know, her role in um, Babylon or her role in uh, Wolf of Wall Street. I think in terms of like acting and performance, like those have a little bit more moving pieces going on. Um, but yeah, in in terms of, of themes, I think Barbie has, has plenty of, so I don't want to mischaracterize that whatsoever. <laughs> you're shaking your head you want to like the flame i'm just i like you're talking about how emotional it can get right mm -hmm. um yeah no i for me it was just like that she's she's great she's understanding and and you can feel how she feels in the real world and it's like I feel seen. It, it moved me in many senses, but emotionally it was like, this is how it feels. And I can see it. And someone is portraying that perfectly. Um, so that's how I feel like this was like a complex it's role. It's like a in perfect caricature. It's like, it's getting all of the details, but it's like yeah. still kind of exaggerated in a way. It, I I think the way they did or, Barbie is like perfectly like exactly what it needed to be. Yes, I I, I agree. I yeah, and I agree. think the movie had enough complexity where I don't think I understood everything. Like the movie is so dense and it has a lot of like deeper nuance than it might seem. That there's like elements of like why did they do this or why did they do that or like yeah I need to see it again or like there's stuff to be discussed here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the acknowledgement that like, I I think everyone can appreciate this movie, but also I am I am not the, I I am logistically speaking not the perspective that this movie is aimed for, and that's fine. The True, the whole I... like point of that movie is being I'm, being fine with that perspective. Yeah, yeah, I do think, I I think that this movie does have something for everyone, and I, I really appreciated that, um, but I do see this and like my female perspective a little bit different and that's completely fine you know that's that's how this is gonna be this is yeah this is one for the girls let's <laughs> you know yeah, we can they're... all enjoy it but at the end of the day this is one for the girls yeah, yeah. and i I, yeah. I think that's that's part of the whole discussion here yeah. is that it's like we've had a million fucking movies that are just for the boys and that's fine there are allowed to be movies that are for the boys that that's going back to the you know the like tv animated barbie movies is that those are those are for the girls yes although um, i don't yeah like after the norseman and shelby wasn't really fucking with it and i loved it and i was like shelby this is just one for the boys okay that's, yeah <laughs> Norseman northman is a is a dude movie oh i disagree but okay Really? I yeah, I love the Northman. <laughs> yes, okay. yes, yes. We did it. Just like how we can love Barbie, also. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I am Kenuff. You are Kenuff. I, I want to talk about the production design of this movie because, like, it it deserves to be talked about. Everything, everything in Barbie Land is fantastic. The only bits that I have like trouble with were like 
when, like, the car chase scene was happening between, like, all of them, it felt kind of out of place compared to everything else. I don't, I don't know, like, the, the real world yeah. stuff couldn't decide if it wanted to be silly or not with, like, all the executives on roller skates and then you have this, like, kind yeah. of serious car chase going on. Oh, I loved, I loved the silly shit. I thought Will Ferrell was, was great. Uh... The, the they're on roller skates while like a Charlie XCX song is yeah. blaring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the, I, I like the music in this one too. Oh yeah. Yeah, I feel like I feel like it does it does like so good social satire on like sort of just elevating the silliness of stuff that's already kind of silly, which is like a giant phallic building where they where men make millions off of toys and mm-hmm. yada yada. Like just like sort of blowing it up to this like campy level i thought that was the complete oh my god dude the the gray uh the gray office and then they call like who do they call the like fbi and it's like a sun office in florida (laughs) yeah yeah that was great and all the all of the like gender specific references are like absolutely amazing like the Godfather and being like, I I had a strange <laughs> urge to watch the, the the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League and yeah, <laughs> and then oh my God the 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 Pride and Prejudice BBC reference that was yeah. I felt attacked <laughs> I I must say yeah the the deprogramming montage was like just. Our bar theater would not stop laughing throughout the entire thing. Yeah, and yeah, I did feel particularly rightfully attacked when it was like, <laughs> "Oh, I'm having trouble with Photoshop," and then like, "Oh, do you want to rewatch Godfather and talk over it the whole time?" Like, I'm just like reexamining how I like movies in Photoshop. Like, oh, I'm the problem. <laughs> yeah, I know it was great. I I think I yeah I definitely think that there are some moments where where obviously i think the male side feeling more attacked like yeah you're kind of supposed to with that but like also the like how it's like the bbc uh pride and prejudice i felt attacked kind of yeah thing as well it's like there there are appropriately low blows they were pointed and they were like very like on the nose about like what they were talking about because like it's just universal all of these references were universal to those genders (laughs) Because I, I think it's talking about some of the the most toxic traits of both masculinity and femininity. Yeah. So it, you're kind of dealing with the the like biggest ends of either spectrum. I I think it was very interesting how she could have attacked both genders in different ways, but she just decided to like do it with movies. Like we're just assigning you the most like I don't know stereotype movies for your genders yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i liked uh you know joe was talking about like the best best moments just when they when they do things through comedy i thought one of the smartest things that the movie did uh that i got at least was when the kins are fighting each other uh like the barbies pin the kins against each other and they're <laughs> fighting and the violence is so goofy and yeah. so yeah. silly and turns into <laughs> Is homoerotic musical dance scene, <laughs> and it's just like perfect to show violence as like how silly it really is. Like, yeah, you know, I just because like violence doesn't make sense. It's stupid, and it's just like to show it like 
as stupid as it can be like war as this like men really like loving each other and dancing together is like such a perfect yeah the the weird homoeroticism of war yeah Um, Yeah. but then then also oh no no you go louisa oh i was gonna say can we please address alan oh i love Uh, alan Alan. When he's like, I'll handle this, and then beats up like a bunch he of like eighteen or goes, something. Goes full Kim. Scott Pilgrim mode. <laughs> yeah, I I love just how I love just how stupid the Kens are too. The when they're when they're building the wall up instead of sideways. I know they're just so. <laughs> I, I believe the correct uh, the correct nomenclature is himbo. Ah yes, sorry, <laughs> himbo. My bad. I thought also uh, Kate McKinnon was really good. Like. uh and a lot of movies, people are like, oh, Kate McKinnon, you're funny. Let's give you like a prop and you can like do something for four minutes. But this <laughs> is like they gave her funny lines and weird Barbie is just a funny character. In both of these movies, Oppenheimer no and Barbie, re- insane cameos, like very famous people being in both movies for five seconds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Barbie had not only John Cena, but Dua Lipa. Dua Lipa is, I- yeah, the mermaid. <laughs> Like, I mean, yeah, basically all of, like, the actual Barbies and, and, and Kens were, like, famous people, or at least the majority of them were. Yeah. It's it's good to see Simu Liu in something else other than Shang-Chi. <laughs> I don't think it's good to see him in anything, personally. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean... he was he was the, the main Ken that Ryan Gosling was beefing with. Mmm. I'm looking at the cast now. <laughs> any other, any other a... thoughts on casting? Just a well, little little interesting uh, tidbit because I I noticed at one point there was um a Barbie in the background with a prosthetic arm, and I was just interested in like was that a like a real Barbie or was that just like a casting? Um, and apparently that's a um a dancer from Central Florida. So I was like, oh cool, Central oh, Florida nice. people. Shout Ooh. out, shout out Orlando area. Yeah, yeah. Shout out, shout intro. out to Adnex Barbie. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Orlando. Uh, shout out to Mitch. Whole... Shout out to Mitch. The whole intro was just so perfect. Like when it was setting up the perfect Barbie world and like the narration and her floating down to the car. Yeah, and then the the beach off scene. It's like the movie needed to settle down a little bit because our my audience at least was just laughing so hard. It's like, okay, we cannot laugh this hard the whole movie. Like it needs to like I could not take that smile off my face during the like first act itself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um what was I gonna say? I, I, I also I like, like how the <laughs> sorry, I was just gonna say I like how the song gets um like corrupted on the second day, how it just yeah. becomes like That's what I meant about the music. The music felt like a more intentional like it, yeah, they were doing a lot of pop songs and stuff like that, but unlike say like the Mario movie where they're just kinda of putting in pop songs and it's like they like vaguely fit the emotional tone of the movie, it's like, oh no, these were songs that were like made and they're like an yeah. actual part of the story. Yeah. I really like that. Uh, I'm just Ken. Oh my god. Just like circling way back around to talking about the production design, like I so much of the the Barbie world uh was like real sets and um like real backdrops and stuff like that. And I just saw some behind the scenes um and it was just impressive like how much uh how much of it was done to like fit the look. Um, and like all the costumes and stuff. Um, yeah, I don't you know, know. You know, I'm not like a huge Barbie fan, but like you could tell there was so much attention to detail taken oh, yeah. specifically from 
the Barbie catalog. You hear the thing about the the worldwide shortage of uh, hot pink paint caused by this movie. That was crazy. Oh, that's were you guys as theaters dressed up? Were were your audiences wearing pink? Absolutely. Yeah. We were dressed up. Yeah. Well, we had we had our Barbenheimer shirts. I did. I I I changed my pants to like my Barbie. Yeah, you had Barbie and Oppenheimer pants. Yeah. No, but we that's we good. Had yeah, I dressed up for the movies, and and my whole theater for Barbie was all in pink. Um, I mean, and like afterwards, like... when I went to the bathroom, I was like, "What's up, Kins? How's it going, Kins?" <laughs> and like everyone's like calling each other Barbie and Ken. Yeah, it was fun. There was there was a possibility that Quentin Tarantino was at our screening of Barbie. We're not quite sure, but there was a picture of him getting uh-huh. a, a ticket at that theater like around that same time. So. There was a slight possibility. Yeah, let's just say he was. Let's let's, make, yeah. let's just pretend. Let's Cinephile just pretend. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like afterwards, I heard people in the lobby saying, "Like, oh, did you see someone walk by?" And I didn't catch the name. So, like, it could have been. Yeah. It's it's fun to believe that it was. Anyway. <laughs> Are there any uh comparisons between these two movies? You know. Um. They uh they both convey Trouble that when men are in charge uh, i think i think they they both kind of also not in the same way but they deal with the idea of legacy and impact and like how a single entity have have you be will can impact the real world they're both about they're both biopics about real people uh they both feature very prominent himbo characters of course barbie has 10 oppenheimer has um matt damon's character (laughs) (laughs) they're both about how men are the problem yeah yeah that's right no it's okay (laughs) they're both a scene on 70 millimeter imax screens yes they both they both took mission impossible's money (laughs) <laughs> they, they both have yep. a scene where the nuke goes off. That's true. How do you how do you think Kubrick would feel about Barbie? <laughs> uh, I, I I think he would detest the beginning. Maybe, I don't know. How did he feel about homages? I feel like Kubrick probably would have had a good chuckle and then never thought about it again. Or it could have been like... his favorite movie. You know, I mean, White Men Can't Jump was his favorite movie. So that's true. That's true. Kubrick was Kubrick was a, a man of diverse taste. This would have been um, Tarkovsky's favorite movie next to the Terminator. Yes. <laughs> was Tarkovsky a Terminator fan? Yeah, he liked uh, the first He one. hated the acting though. Um, uh, I know Bergman was a Jurassic Park fan. No way. Yeah, yeah. And James Bond, I think. Um, I I, I saw it. Um. I don't know if he was like in in an interview or if he was just like a brief guest on a podcast, but Nolan recently said he really likes Talladega Nights. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. there, there's a there's a sound bite of Christopher Nolan saying, "If you're not first, you're last." Wow. <laughs> put put John C. Riley in the next <laughs> Christopher Nolan. In Oppenheimer movie. two. Yes. Uh, Oppenheimer two, the bigger bomb. <laughs> the dark Oppenheimer. No way. No way. <laughs> We got to uh, go back in time and stop ourselves from ever building that. <laughs> bomb to the future. All right. Uh, any future. any any more thoughts on uh, two of these films? I I will Barbie say Barbie tomorrow. 
I will say that um, I, I saw Barbie with my mom, and I think one of the things that we didn't appreciate as much about the film was like how like it's talking about serious topics. So it, it I guess at times it does need to get serious, but I think we were expecting a little bit more of like a fun, rompy ending for Barbie. And like not a lot of people, at least in our theater, like were walking out like smiling or laughing like i saw a lot of people it, it was so weird i saw a lot of people like at my second showing of oppenheimer like walking out smiling and like enjoying talking to each other um but yeah barbie everyone seemed just kind of like down yeah after. yeah no i was i was a wreck i was emotionally wrecked it was just like this is it's just so true and it's just it just hurts the I mean the ending really was just like life life does go on I do got to make my appointment. <laughs> I know like yeah I love that she had to go to the gynecologist it was so funny I did appreciate that 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 was the ending. Yeah um, yeah it, it ends how... on like a yeah. Sorry go ahead. No 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 I'm just gonna say like I like that it, it, after the heaviness it brought a little joke into it. Yeah, yeah. like it didn't on a lighter note but I was still. Like, what just happened? This, I wasn't expecting this, but but it was fine. I love that I was wrecked. You know, I, I love that it moved so many things in me. Yeah. For sure. All right, boys, that's dead silence. So it, it sounds oh, like we're wrapping yep. up. It sounds <laughs> like it's time to talk about Venture Bros. Radiant is the blood of the baboon yes, heart. Let's the go. actual best movie what of that day. That? It's it's the series finale to the Venture Brothers that was released as a movie the same day as Barbenheimer. Yeah. Anyway, that'll that. I'm just I'm just foreshadowing another. I'm foreshadowing another podcast. Table that thought. Uh, yeah, we'll table that one. Uh, all right, boys. Uh, I'm not gonna end this one with orphans in space because that's only for me, Alex, and Jim. So get out of here. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good afternoon. See you guys. Bye. Yeah. I thought also uh, Kristen Wiig was really good. Like. Uh, and a lot of movies, people are like, oh, Christian Wig, you're funny. Let's give you, like, a prop, and you can, like, do something for four minutes. But this <laughs> is, like, they gave her funny lines, and Weird Barbie is just a funny character. Wait, and... wait that's that, that wasn't Christian Wig. <laughs> no, Who Kate, am I McKinnon. Thinking of? No, Kate McKinnon. Another okay. SNL. All right. Similar, My no, bad. Similar person, both on SNL. You know, okay. we get it. it uh, that could have been a brain fart. Yeah. John Cena was there Nick, for like two seconds. You can edit that. You can make it so I said it. Uh... <laughs> you got a bus. All right, uh -oh. thanks.